Throughout the month of February, we are considering four words that might be helpful to a church and to a pastor approaching a time of change. We began two Sundays ago considering the word calling, and then last week we explored the nature of a blessing. And this week we are invited to think again about what it means to be surprised by God. We do so through the lens of a story, a story about a dysfunctional family from many, many years ago. One who had a young brother, a son named Joseph, a man who dreamed. As many of us, I'm sure, are familiar, Joseph's dreams get him into trouble, especially with his brothers who at some point have enough of it and throw him into a pit and leave him for dead. But unbeknownst to them, Joseph is pulled out of that pit by traitors and sold into slavery in Egypt. And it is there in Egypt over the course of many years that Joseph rises and falls and then rises again to power that is almost unimaginable. And finally, in a rich twist of irony, it is to a man who holds great power in Egypt that all of those brothers, so many years later, come to ask for help. For there is a famine in the land, and only Joseph had the foresight to plan. Now the brothers did not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And here now in the 45th chapter of Genesis, at last, Joseph reveals himself. Joseph, you might say, surprises his brothers. Let us listen once more for a word from God as we hear these verses from Genesis chapter 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers, they were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come, come close to me. And when they had done so, he, he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God, God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, Joseph said, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then he continued, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have. Otherwise you and your household 
and all who belong to you will become destitute. And he kissed all of his brothers, and he wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit that it would shock us awake, that it would surprise us with good news. Indeed, O oh God, we pray that through the work of your spirit there would be a bridge from this ancient story to our present living, that through its work the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, the thing that surprises me most about the Joseph story is that it's not a particularly religious one. Abraham and Sarah, they have their three visitors at the tent. Jacob has his wrestling match there with an angel by the banks of the Jabbok River. A little later, Moses, he has his burning bush and his smoke and fire and commandments from on high. But never once, not once, is God mentioned as a character in the story of Joseph. God never visits Joseph. God never speaks directly to Joseph. God certainly never wrestles or commands Joseph. Now, God is assumed to be sure throughout the story as being real and faithful. There's a refrain that when you read through Joseph's story from start to finish, you hear again and again where it says, the Lord was with Joseph. It's assumed that God is real and faithful in this story, but otherwise, God seems hands off as Joseph and his fractious family experience all their ups and all their downs. This is not a particularly religious story until, until our verses today. Three times in these 10 verses, Joseph affirms that it is God's hand that has been at work all along, three times. Do not be distressed, do not be angry, he says to his brothers, for it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead, he says again, to preserve a remnant on earth and to save your lives. So then, it was not you, he says, who sent me, but God. Suddenly here in Genesis 45, all the pieces that have been out on the table, the pieces of this story, they seem to fall into place. It's almost as if Joseph has a revelation as he is speaking the words. This revelation that despite all of the sordid human actions, as Walter Brueggemann put it, Throughout all the sordid human actions, throughout his life and the life of his brothers, the purposes of God have been at work. 
within and with and under and over and through it all. And the revelation he has is that what God has purposed in it all is salvation, is life. Friends, imagine, imagine the surprise that those brothers and Joseph himself must have had as suddenly in this moment they look back and they see God's hand at work in it all. <coughs> Brueggemann, who I just mentioned, he's got this great phrase for this passage. He says that this is the great gospel disclosure. The great gospel disclosure. Here is this group of brothers, again, Joseph included, who all expected shame and slavery and death at time and time again in the story. It seems like they are all done for. But what happens to them instead is the gospel. The dead one is alive. The abandoned one has returned to power the dream has had its way. And now suddenly in this moment, this entirely new future, a future that they could not have imagined in their wildest dreams just seconds before, this entirely new future has been opened up to them. You know, in so many ways, I am grateful that this is not a particularly religious story because, frankly, I think that that's how most of us experience life. Right? We all come to church. Here you are. Maybe some of you wake up most mornings and read a verse of scripture or a devotional or you volunteer on a committee or two or three or try and stay away from them. But in the back of our minds, I think we all wonder at different points, where is God's voice? Where is God's hand? Where is God's action? Where is the angel to wrestle for us? Where is the smoke and fire and commandments from on high? Where is any of that for us? And therein lies the power of Joseph's story. Because it is Joseph's story that opens to us the possibility that even when we do not realize it, God's hands are steadily and steadfastly at work. That God is one who can, can cause a new sprig to sprout from the soil of any situation. That God is a God who can take something that someone might intend for hurt and use it instead for good. That our God, Joseph's God, is one who can touch hearts and stir history in spite of us. Now there is good news. And it's not that we all live at the end of some puppet strings that God pulls from on high. It's not that God has willed or even decided all of this ahead of time. It's simply that God can make use of anything in our lives. Now, it might take an hour. It might take a day. 
It might take a week or a year or even a lifetime. It might even take more. But the power of Joseph's story is that it reveals to us that God can even take moments that surprise us, shock us perhaps, and then surprise us all over again. I remember reading once that Winston Churchill meticulously planned his own funeral. He died in 1965, 90 years old. That when, when I stopped and thought about that, it's actually kind of amazing when you think about some of his documented health habits that he made it to 90 <laughs> years old. His funeral was in St. Paul's Cathedral there in London. He picked all of the hymns to be sung and the scriptures to be read. And then he had two very specific requests for how his funeral was to end. When the benediction had been said from the high altar there in that grand space, people remember that there was a silence that fell over the packed cathedral. And then suddenly from way up high in the dome above, a bugler began to play the notes of taps, a well-known signal marking the end of something. Those haunting notes, people would remember later, brought home to everyone the realization that an era had come to an end. And it was reported that there was hardly a dry eye in the church. Remember, Churchill had two specific requests. After the notes of taps had faded, another bugler on the opposite side of the dome began to play the notes of Reveille. Reveille is the tune that in most military cultures is used to wake up it's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. That final touch, it caught everyone by surprise. And it revealed to everyone where Churchill had gotten the strength across the years to never give up. Because it revealed that he believed that the worst thing are never the last things, and that the final sounds of history will not be taps, but reveille. Everyone in our story today, from here near the end of the book of Genesis, everyone in that story expected to hear taps. But instead, what they got was Reveille. I love the last line of this passage. It says simply that afterwards, after they had wept upon one another, afterward his brothers talked with Joseph. Imagine that conversation. 
Imagine the conversation that happens between a group of people who are suddenly aware that neither the best nor the worst, neither the best nor the worst things are ever the last. Imagine the conversation between a group of people who are suddenly aware that the same God whose hidden purposes had brought them to that very point was the God who was still there and who would lead them through all that is still ahead. Now, friends, now imagine a church that lives with that same awareness. That same awareness that no matter what happens, it's not the last. Because if history is any indicator, I dare say that there is a good chance that a church that lives like that might very well be caught by surprise. Friends, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may we be a church that lives like that. Amen.